0: Social determinants of health into professional teams, improving healthcare delivery to patients and families. These are the themes of our Urban Service Talks, a podcast featuring the stories of students from a variety of healthcare professions, learning together to serve patients in our underserved community.
1: We are a group of curious Urban Service Track AX scholars sharing insight to educate and spark change wherever our stories are told.
0: Welcome back everyone to Urban Service Talks and welcome to our second episode on the series discussing the impact of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. On today's episode, we will be discussing the latest about transgender healthcare and the impact of the overturning of Roe v. Wade on this community. My name is Athena. I am a fourth year pharmacy student at the Yukon School of Pharmacy and my pronouns are they slash them, and I am accompanied by my co-host, Samhita.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Samita. I go by she, her pronouns, and I'm a second-year medical student at UConn School of Medicine.
0: And we are also here with our podcast producer, Connor. His pronouns are he slash him, and he is a second-year physician assistant student at Quinnipiac University. We are so excited to welcome our guest, To help us tackle this topic, Dr. Christine Rodriguez. Dr. Christine Rodriguez is a senior lecturer in the Yale University Graduate Entry Nursing Program and serves as the director of the simulation unit at Yale School of Nursing. She has a diverse background spanning multiple interest fields, which include the LGBTQIA healthcare, racial equity and social justice, spirituality, and medical cannabis use, amongst other things. We are so grateful for her to be here and are ready and willing to learn all we can regarding transgender healthcare in general and what that looks like right now in this post-Roe v. Wade era that we live in today. As a disclaimer to our listeners, all views and opinions discussed on this podcast are our own and are not representative of any institution any of us are associated with, which includes Connecticut AHEC, Urban Service Track, UConn, and other affiliations. That being said, we have a jam-packed episode, so we are going to get things going, and with our fabulous guests, of course, and this very important conversation. Let's start with getting to know you a little bit more, Dr. Rodriguez, and what your current role is right now.
2: Definitely. yeah. thank you, Athena, for the question. Humble to be here. As you stated, my name is Christine Rodriguez. I serve as faculty at Yale School of Nursing. I'm a director of the simulation unit, so I'm responsible for simulation-based education, and I root most of those concepts on LGBTQ+ plus healthcare. And I also serve as the co-chair of the graduate entry pre-specialty in nursing program. For my clinical work, I am a nurse practitioner by training, a family nurse practitioner, where I've kind of been working with this patient population for quite some years right now, doing gender-affirming hormones as well as kind of referrals for gender-affirming surgeries. And a lot of educational kind of services like this, discussing um, the needs of trans healthcare and the importance of infusing it within um healthcare curriculums.
0: Thank you so much. You're an expert in this um, topic and we're really excited to have you here to have this discussion with you. So let's start setting the stage really about what exactly transgender care looks like right now. In your opinion, what is essential for trans patients' healthcare and what is essential for their care?
2: That's a great question, Athena. I think it's important to understand that, you know, trans folks know their bodies, right? Um, So they know their bodies best. And I think it's important to kind of put that on the forefront um and approaching patients like this we have to have cultural humility. Um, I talk often about the difference between cultural humility versus cultural competence. And cultural humility is how we should be approaching care. We can never become competent in someone's culture, right? We're not even confident within our own cultures, which is really an interesting notion to even believe. But yeah, in the forefront of trans healthcare, I think that putting them at the forefront, of their bodies is what matters most. So they know by the time they reach healthcare what they want, what their goals are. And our goals as healthcare providers is to guide them through that journey, right? Facilitate that journey with them, collaborate on a participatory approach where we guide them and say, okay, what is it that you want? How can we help you reach that journey while doing it safely in a medical way, looking at lab values and not looking towards, you know, different markets for these kind of things. Often it's a big stigmatization within healthcare still. There's still a big need within healthcare curriculums to infuse gender sensitive care for trans and gender diverse folks. So uh, I think that's kind of where things should kind of start. At the forefront with healthcare curriculum. Often, what we see is in clinical training is where it gets discussed. So, if we can train healthcare providers and our healthcare clinicians to understand these needs right from the get go within school, it would help kind of mitigate this um, health disparities we see within the population as well as the health inequities.
3: I kind of also want to add is there any other aspect of their health or their care that is necessary that may be overlooked right now in in healthcare, it could be not necessarily medical, like you mentioned, not everything is about the lab values or the actual body itself. There are a lot of other aspects. Would you say there are other
2: aspects? Oh, most definitely, Samita. Yeah, definitely. Um, I always say a multidisciplinary approach breeds the best outcomes, right? So this involves mental health, this involves on um, everything from physical health, physical therapy plays a huge role, especially with gender affirming surgeries, right? Doing Kegel exercises for vaginal plasti,es things like that. When we look specifically, too, at um, endocrinologists in their role, you know, they can function within doing hormones and things like that. We see it in primary care. We see it in plastics. Plastics plays a huge role with a lot of gender-affirming surgeries. Facial feminization surgeries, vocal speech and pathology plays a huge role, too, with vocal feminization programs, vocal feminization surgeries. So I I always say a multidisciplinary approach breeds the best outcomes. It's really interesting to see the history of where this diagnosis came from. Um, We typically see it in the, the DSMs, right? where we first see the notion of gender identity disorder. And then now with the DSM-5's new um, rendition, we see gender dysphoria. We do notice that, um, and we're really excited about this, is with the ICD-11 by the um, World Health Organization's classification, we're going to see this um, new coding called gender incongruence now to kind of now encompass everything, right? Now I'm not saying, okay, this is not a mental health thing. This involves everyone within our community. So it speaks volumes to what you're saying, Samita. But it's not just a primary care thing, you know, it should be a multidisciplinary approach because that's what's going to be the best outcomes for these patients.
3: Yeah, no, and we're definitely all about multidisciplinary interprofessional work here at UST.
0: The next thing we wanted to ask you is what are some common barriers transgender patients face in achieving wellness today, specifically in the US, since I know each country has their own sort of localized uh, issues in terms of transgender care. But in the US, what do you exactly see both in your practice as well as just out as of right now with common barriers?
2: Yeah, I see um, anecdotally, right, evidence. And then I see what you see throughout the literature. Um, Anecdotally, my experiences with patients, there are barriers that do play a role into it. Financial barriers is a big key. Often documents, you know, access to these services within the community, it's tough. Research suggests trans people will drive or three times more likely to drive 50 or more miles to receive competent care. So it just shows you why I've had patients travel from different parts of the country just to receive Care that's affirming and inclusive of their identities, right? We want to validate that. And we see that throughout the literature. Uh, The literature also supports, you know, difficulty with providers' knowledge, right? About 50% of trans people are responsible for teaching their healthcare providers regarding their care. And you would think it would be the other way around, but it just speaks to the need for it to be infused within healthcare curriculums. So I would say the education starts first, you know, in those academic settings, understanding the needs of this population and rooting these kind of concepts within the curriculum more access to these cares, right? Um, some of the medications, even insurances, um, we often find we have to do all these kind of hurdles to jump through them. Certain surgeries are covered for um, the trans feminine spectrum, right? And then there's certain surgeries that are covered for trans masculine spectrums. And I would say from my experience, we see a lot of them being covered more for trans masculine compared to trans feminine spectrum. And insurances, you know, will say, okay, yeah, we'll cover a plasty, or yes, we'll cover an orchiectomy but we're not going to do facial feminization surgery we're not going to shave you know the tracheal area like adam's apple that's not going to be covered that's elective um so there has to be this understanding that things aren't elective this is a medical necessity right and what we're treating is patients i always explain it we're treating suicidality i mean the rates in this population you could see the difference 41.6% is a suicide rate some studies even postulate even higher and the general population is 4.6 So you're talking almost nearly nine times the rate of the general population. So we are treating these patients and this you see the well-being in what we do, especially once they start going on hormones, if that's what they choose to do. And I always give the disclaimer, you're not trans because you go hormones, whether it's hormonally enhanced or surgically enhanced. You're trans because you're trans. You don't have to do any medical intervention to state that. Um, And I think it's important to center that because even within the same community, you still have discrimination. You still have ostracization. No, oh, this is not what trans looks like. You're not trans enough. No, you are trans enough. You're trans because you're trans.
3: Yeah, that's that's a really, really important message. and I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. I think that your work is really important. And I think that something that we have been discussing a lot as current political events unfold, uh, especially with the relatively recent overturning of Roe v. Wade is what are the conversations that are happening around healthcare in different aspects of the country right now? And certain things that we find to be linked are things like trans healthcare and women's rights and reproductive justice. So in line with the theming of this podcast season, which is actually revolving around the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the impacts that has on different patient populations, we wanted to kind of pivot a little and ask you about what kind of potential harm or effects you see or you might expect to see in trans patients with a decision like the overturning of Roe v. Wade or other similar legislations.
2: Yeah, it was a blow. Um, I'll be honest to you. The trans community really suffered with this one especially our trans men and our non-binary patients. Um, it was really, really touched a tough blow because of the reproductive rights, right? Now you're basically saying that, you know, your body is matter, right? Now you're saying you don't have the choice. You've removed that choice and the ability to do it. I've had experiences with patients who speak about their stories, you know, that even just the process of having a child or giving birth can be gender dysphoria to their bodies. And now what you're saying is you don't have an option for that. You have to go forward with this and have a dysphoric experience where you're giving birth and you may not necessarily want that process, right? So it really kind of confounded a lot of variables and it set the tone for a lot of different things, right? Um, one of the things that we see is specifically within the population is, okay, now's the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but is this almost like an initial starting point for anti-trans legislation now? And now we see this kind of picking up in a lot of various states where now we're seeing anti-trans legislation, blocking of gender affirming hormones for our trans youths. So lots of these things have a ripple effect that are impacting not just, you know, people always say, you know, women's rights or reproductive rights, but we often forget about historically marginalized populations like trans men who often are discriminated in obstetrics and GYN settings because of who they are and their identities. I recently had an experience where I was able to talk to a trans man who told me, you know, they went to go get their pap done. And um, the laughing by the staff was enough for them to get up and leave because they said, you know, we, I saw that they were being ridiculed, even the way they were trying to call my name. And often within the room, they were accompanied by their parent, and the parent was super supportive, but the looks that they were getting, and even one patient on the other side said, um, why are you here? I don't understand why you would be here receiving care. And that was more than enough for the trans person to say, you know what, this is not an affirming and inclusive environment for me, I don't feel safe accessing care here, and look for more of an affirming environment and look for those resources within the community. So The overturning of Roe vs. Wade impacts a lot of folks, but it definitely was a blow for our trans masculine and non-binary identities.
3: That's a really powerful and upsetting story to hear. And, And I'm sure that many trans folks experience similar situations, which is really unfortunate. And that's also part of the reason why we're here. We're trying to educate ourselves as well as any of the listeners of the podcast. And I also wanted to expand on that and ask a little bit about, you mentioned that there's this fear around one piece of legislation kind of leading to a different kind of outcome in different populations, not just the population that people would assume is affected by this. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that intersection between trans health care and reproductive rights and how one thing affects the other
2: inevitably. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. When we think of reproductive rights, right, we think of contraception, right? And what's the big thing with contraception? It's hormones, right? That's what usually we think of hormones, hormones, hormones. So for trans people, hormones, right? That's their life, right? People take it daily, daily for the rest of their lives if they need it. And I think it's important to keep that kind of understanding because what you just impacted now is saying reproductive rights now are being challenged, right? And if this is being challenged, what's next? Is gender affirming care going to be challenged? Access to hormones, right? And hormones is what is needed. Like we spoke about that suicidality rate. For some people, hormones is what they need to be able to feel good in their body, not feel dysphoric, right? And I always explain dysphoria as it doesn't have to just be body dysphoria. It could be social dysphoria, right? The way that you express your gender in society and whether someone calls you by certain terminology or if they sir or ma'am you or use the wrong pronouns, this is social dysphoric feeling you're going to have. So it shouldn't just be, hey, it's just body dysphoria that transgender diverse folks experience. It's both social and body dysphoria. But yeah, once we hear, hey, hormones are being attacked, reproductive rights are being attacked, the next thing our minds go into is, okay, well, wait a second. Does this mean we may not have access to hormones anymore? I always remember about even the change of administration, right? Um, When new presidents took a place, I remember a lot of patients were, I may not be able to change my name. Can I get a name marker change immediately? Because I think that this president may create a law that may stop me from changing my name. And how do I change that? on documents, like federal documents, like passports and things like that, like social security, it really can create a chaos kind of environment for folks. Um, and it really almost puts an impetus on patients to say, OK, well, wait a second. I need to get my documents intact. And again, we're kind of dealing with these inequities, right? Anxiety now coming back up. Some of the depression rates now are increased as a result of some of these legislations that are being passed. So it definitely has a rippling effect, Um, and it's very concerning definitely to know that, wait a second, if this was done, what's next on the line? What are we seeing? There are a lot of organizations that are also coming out of it. It's not just um, anti-trans legislations, but we have organizations now that are kind of shifting their focus and saying, this shouldn't be within healthcare curriculums. We should not be talking about race. We should not be talking about gender identity. We should not be talking about gender expression. And all these things, um, there's an interesting group that speaks about, you know, we're going to attack the spaces that are doing, they're attacking medical schools and medical school curriculums because they're teaching these things um, and saying that we're influencing the population. It's not an influence. Trans people have always existed. Um, you could see from the beginnings of times. In fact, even through my seminary education, there was a discussion about Unix and how Unix played a role specifically as the gender diverse folks within that specific timeframe. So it's interesting to see the World Professional Association of Trans Health and their Standards of Care 8, they actually have a section dedicated to UNIX and describing that. So this is not something that is, hey, brand new. This has existed from the beginning of time.
3: And and that's interesting. I didn't know that about UNIX. Yeah, definitely need to do some reading. Thank you for speaking on that. I think that's really important. And, And definitely, like I mentioned, in line with our season, kind of discussing the impacts of Roe v. Wade and how that is is a lot more than just that one legislature. So I, yeah, I really appreciate your your perspective on that.
0: And yeah, I just want to make a comment. Granted, too, being in the LGBTQ community myself, you see that sort of anxiety. It's kind of like a, as you said, like a domino effect where you kind of see them going, I really need to start getting my documents together. I really need to start getting some of my identifications together because it really is just, you don't know what's gonna happen now. So thank you so much for that. You really see that both as in the healthcare setting right now, as well as just out in like social media and everything, it's something that's kind of permeating. But of course, like now that we are talking more about some of the fears, some of the anxieties that both us as healthcare professionals who are advocating for these this patient population as well as our patients, how can we as healthcare professionals advocate for, the, for our transgender patients in both the healthcare setting as well as like the public setting?
2: There's a lot of things that we can do as healthcare professionals for this. One of the big works for us is awareness, right? Having that humility first to say, hey, I'm going to dig into the literature. I'm going to learn to do this stuff. Within my training, I didn't get a lot of trans healthcare. I think we had a dedicated maybe about two hours, which was one lecture dedicated to trans healthcare. And for me, I was like, wait a second, well, why is this only given two hours within a whole curriculum? So there was a gap there. And it was a gap that, you know, as a healthcare professional, I said, hey, this needs to be exposed and I need more training regarding the needs of this population. I attended conferences. I said, you know, let me go through the national conferences specifically. We have great conferences that are national throughout the nation. Fenway puts a great one out on discussing trans healthcare needs. Mazzoni Center out in Philadelphia does another great one discussing the needs of trans folks. And we're seeing a lot of these popping up everywhere. UCSF does a really great they have a center of excellence dedicated to transgender health care and they actually provide guidelines for primary care and what that looks like everywhere from cancer screening all the way to gender affirming hormones and what that looks like from a surgery perspective, too. So the research is out there. We just have to dig it, right? I always say, you know, as healthcare professionals, we we grab our shovels and we go where we need to go and we dig, we dig, we dig, we dig until we learn that information, right? That's what we learned when we were in school. We study, 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 study. And that should continue, right? The process of studying doesn't stop. We're lifetime learners, right? Just as our society ever evolves, we have to evolve with that society. We need to keep up with that terminology. We need to know the best needs of our communities. We need to reflect the diversity that we see in our community within our own healthcare workforce, right? So I think all those play such an integral role. When a trans patient sees a trans provider, that speaks wonders, right? That speaks safety, that speaks affirmation, that speaks validation to them. And I think those are the things that we need to see within healthcare, right? So I think that's one of the things we need to do is amplify the voices of historically marginalized folks, right? Where we see people that were not really kind of included but excluded. Let's put them part of the circle, bring those people into the conversations. Often I see healthcare professionals talk about, okay, let's beat up healthcare, let's beat up an in interdisciplinary teams. Well, why not bring trans folks into this, right? They know this best. And why not involve them also in their care? I'm all about participatory approach to healthcare, where you're participating with one another in a collaborative type of relationship. But it's really interesting. So I would say it starts with humility, awareness, diving deep into getting those resources and what you need specifically, and then working with folks, right? Not just saying, hey, we're here and we're going to help you. No, say, we want you to be a part also. We want you to help us kind of shift our healthcare. Help us understand your needs so we can impact this and make this bloke right National and internationally. That's how I pretty much look at it. But the resources are there. We just have to dig for those resources. Another one is meeting with legislation. When you have these state law Democrats, Republicans, whoever, all these parties you want to be a part of, reaching out saying, hey, we're creating policies. We're creating legislation. We're healthcare providers. We should take tolls in that. We should discuss those things with them. I had a wonderful discussion, I think about a week ago or two weeks ago with Connecticut legislation, looking specifically at trans policies. We should be talking, so what does that look like for K-12, right? What does that look like within healthcare settings? What does that look like for people within our judicial system? What does that mean for them? If we don't speak about these things and we don't, we're not going to create the change that's needed within the community, right? We're just going to say, okay, someone else can do that work. But no, we can change that landscape. We just have to put ourselves out there. So whenever you have those opportunities to you know, be able to speak on legislation or do that or policy work, be up there in forefront. Don't shy away from it. It's a collaborative mindset. You're working with legislation to kind of do this together. It's not, you don't have to be an expert on policies. You don't have to be an expert on this stuff. You just have to want to commit to making a change, making the world better for people, right? Affirming them, validating people's experiences. It's not good to negate their lived experiences. It's all about treating them, meeting the patient right where they're at. So I definitely think legislation, awareness, humility, Digging up those resources, like we said, all of those are great starting points. Funding organizations, right? Working with the organizations that also help these folks. GLAD is a great one that does great on birth toolkits, providing gender markers, things like that. Human Rights Campaign. Becoming an organization that participates with the Healthcare Equality Index that the Human Rights Campaign does to become a national leader in healthcare or LGBTQ plus rights. So there are opportunities that we could do. We see it a little bit in healthcare, right? Um, I, was, I was really amazed to see Medicaid and Medicare services say, hey, we want to make this meaningful criteria for us to collect SOGI data and SOGI sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression data. And to me, I'm like, why haven't we been doing this? Why haven't we be asking patients about their gender identity, their pronouns when they first see us? Same thing, organ inventories. What kind of organs have, do they have present? We should be asking everybody that, not just trans and gender diverse folks, because it's important from a cost resource utilization standpoint. When a trans woman goes and accesses service in the emergency department, no one even comes to think about, hey, is this a trans person? Is this not? Nobody asks the gender identity. They assume. So they say, okay, this must be someone who was a born a woman, sex assigned to birth was a woman. Let's just give them a pregnancy test to make sure they're not pregnant. Little do they know that this person could be a trans woman and is unable to conceive. And there you go losing wasted money because of the resources by not asking the right questions. So there is a need for the importance of a two-step identity process where we're asking people their sex assigned at birth as well as what gender identity or gender expression they have because that promotes a lot of outcomes within healthcare. It drives how we screen, it drives how we treat STIs. It baffles me to understand like why aren't we doing these things within healthcare and why is it being talked about right now? This should have been existed a long time ago and could help these inequities and disparities we see right now because it is heartbreaking. One of the statistics was 19% of trans or gender diverse folks are refused medical care because of their gender identity. That's 19% saying, hey, I don't want to see you because you don't belong. And then 2% are actually sexually assaulted by their health care providers. So when you hear these numbers, you're like, wow, is this what we're hearing? And these are the reasons why is because we're not out there. They're not seeing us as a refuge of safety. They're just saying, oh, if this person is trans competent, okay, this is who I'm going to go to. But if we have nothing that says it, there's nothing, no pronouns, nothing listed on a website, they are not going to access services because they are in fear of the discrimination that they've experienced within healthcare settings. And compared to most settings, healthcare is one of the most discriminatory regarding trans care.
0: Dr. Rodriguez, thank you so much. As you said at the very beginning, a trans patient or a a gender nonconforming or non-binary patient, they know their body best. And so bringing them into the conversation, bringing them into their own patient care and letting them sort of steer how they want their care to go, that is so important because as you said, giving these patients exactly what kind of care they need and giving them sort of the space to speak about their care and what they feel is important. You did touch a little bit on resources, but we did want to ask too, what specific resources are available currently? For healthcare professionals that can better help us to care for our transgender patients, what are some things that we can point towards or maybe even suggest to our transgender patients currently?
2: There's a great amount of resources. I know it touched a little bit about it. Um, What great starting point, especially for primary care, um, is UCSF Center of Excellence um, Transgender Care Guidelines. Uh, Maddie Dutch has done a phenomenal job, her and her colleagues, um, doing this resource. And it is a great starting point just to kind of understand a little bit about the needs of, of trans folks, right, and gender diverse folks. So I think that's a great one. Um, The Journal of Endocrinology, Ambre et al. um, did a beautiful position paper in 2017 that discusses, you know, the guidelines for how we access gender affirming care, both for trans youths as well as adults. And that looks great. And it's a great discussion regarding the complications associated with hormones and provides a great discussion regarding, hey, these are the lab values we're looking for. This is what we should be doing prior. Just another great resource. Um, The DSM-5, again, we always say a multidisciplinary approach, right? So we see that diagnosis of gender dysphoria within the DSM-5, but still it's important to us understand what that means. So looking at that criteria, specifically what it is, certainly as it states, in order for you to have gender-affirming surgeries, you need two letters from behavioral health clinicians. And that's why you cannot negate the focus of interdisciplinary. Because if you just do all medical, guess what? If you're looking for a gender-affirming surgery, you're not going to be able to get it from a healthcare provider who does primary care. But you will be able to get it from someone who does behavioral health because they have the ability to write that letter. We're hoping with the shift from gender dysphoria to gender incongruence that now we're going to see more of, you know, medical providers in that type of setting, primary care, things like that, writing those letters for these patients. Because as it sits, what I do is just write a letter of medical necessity. So lots of kind of interesting resources with those. I also would say the standards of care set forth by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And they update these, and this is a great collection of great experts within our community nationwide who discuss everything covering, you can imagine, trans and gender diverse care. That's a great starting point. So you've got UCSF, you've got WPATH, um, you've got the conferences I've discussed like Fenway, Mazzoni Center. If you're a student, tap into the LGBTQ centers within there. Ask to learn more about those experiences. Sit with someone who is trans or someone who's different from you. And actually listen to their story. There's so much power to learn from someone's lived experiences. And it really shapes how you kind of change your own perspectives. So I always encourage a mix of those. But those are great resources for people kind of to tackle on regarding to a great starting point. As far as education, right, I think this is another interesting area where how can we kind of make this more inclusive and look at kind of dynamics where we shift that. We as faculty, we hold a privilege, right? There's a power dynamic within that room. And I think it's important that you need to restructure that. You have to shift those power dynamics and say, no, no, no. I'm here to learn as just as much for my learners as just as much as I'm teaching. And yep, whatever I teach you all, you all will learn. But the learners will teach me things too. This is a symbiotic relationship, right? And I think it's important to kind of speak and change and shift those power dynamics. You'll be so surprised to even hear students say, hey, I think this question would be great if you just changed the pronouns today. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my goodness. So great example. Um, we had a lab that we were doing specifically for um, a class that we call childbearing families. And um, they were asking, you know, how can we become more inclusive? What can we do specifically? And what was one of my suggestions was, let me look at what you're saying. And they would say, you know, a woman has given birth and grab it a one and pair a one. And I'm like, OK, why don't you just say they they have given birth and let students reflect and think what that means. What does this mean to you? Who do you think this person is who's giving birth? Say a trans man, he has given birth. That changes and shifts. Students are like, well, wait a second, he's giving birth? That's a teaching moment. Then you could say, yeah, well, let's talk about how trans men actually can give birth. Let's talk about how trans women can also breastfeed. And I think that's an important notion because sometimes people are like, well, wait a second, this this doesn't exist. Trans women can breastfeed, right? There's a great study done by um, Zill Goldstein and her colleague discussing the importance of how you can actually have trans women breastfeed by giving them certain hormones, right? Increasing the estrogen, increasing um, a galactogal, and giving them progesterone. So it was really so interesting to see um, the story of that case where, you know, it was a cisgender woman who said, I want a child. And the trans woman's like, I want a child too, but I want to be active too. And I want to breastfeed. And because they work together with their provider in that collaborative participatory approach, It was accomplished. So there is this understanding that if you work together, you can get things done. But don't isolate people, don't silo them, right? We're trying to meet the better good of our community. And the best way we can do that is by working together as a community to meet those needs. One more thing that I specifically want to talk about um, is rooted in how do you interact with folks who may not be able to say, hey, this is not as important. Why do we need to do this? You're challenging motherhood and what that looks like specifically in obstetrics or GYN. Oh, maternal care. That's the language we've always used. Those are tough conversations to have, right? Difficult conversations. Um, People feel challenged, right? And and we understand this notion of challenging, but I always bring it back to the data. I think it's important for us to use data, to use the literature, right? To kind of exemplify our points. So when things like that come up, I challenge it. I always say, okay, well, wait a second. Are you just saying that this is only specifically for motherhood? What defines a mother, right? And, And then we need to understand what that specifically means because not all women can conceive. So even just that notion, you're excluding people who may not have access to fertility or be able to to conceive. So I think it's important to point those things out. I always say when people feel challenged, you know, it creates a ruckus and they don't like that. And they're like, oh, we don't know it. I always say people fear the unknown, that unknown, not understanding what it is. And sometimes maybe it's just a conversation that they've never met someone who's trans or gender diverse. And then when you finally speak to them, they're like, oh, now I understand the needs. I just didn't really get that before. But now that you speak about it, it's important. I see a lot of mixture, right? Even with the discussion regarding bathrooms. I think about two years ago, this was a controversial topic. And they were saying, oh, people who are accessing these bathrooms are going to do these type of things to my children. And then on the other side, what we're not discussing is the disparities that the folks who are trans are accessing the services when they're being literally sexually assaulted in these spaces. We're not talking about that. What we're talking specifically about is we think that these are the people that are doing this to children. So I do think you see these onslaught attacks everywhere. Great example where, you know, drag queens going into libraries, just trying to teach people about this and the onslaught attack regarding that and just saying, hey, people protesting, saying you can't do this. You can't do that. People have their right to do this. Right. We have freedom of speech. And I always say it's interesting hearing the people who say that and they say, "Okay, well, I have freedom of speech and I can say this. And then it's like, well, I'm not going to fight you with freedom of speech versus freedom of speech. We all know we have freedom of speech. (laughs) What I'm going to challenge you with is the data. I'm going to challenge you what we see within the literature. I'm going to speak on those things because that's a solid foundation, right? I always say we want that solid foundation to be the cornerstone, a rock. I don't want that cornerstone to be sand. I want to talk to you about the foundation. So I do think, yeah, calling it out is a great way to say, okay, well, let's kind of talk more about it. I don't like when people challenge people where it turns into more of like, let me school you. Let me talk to you about how I know this. No, let's more talk together how we can learn together. And that way I can understand your viewpoint, your different perspectives, your different opinions, your diversity of ideas. And that way you can listen to minds, right? And I think it involves both parties to have humility, to be able to be humble enough to be active listeners on both sides. Sometimes you'll have people who are active listeners and are saying, okay, I want to learn. And then you have folks who just are like, I'm shutting down. My way is right. I am not going to hear that. If you see that, there's no part for you to engage in that type of dialogue. In fact, it may not even be safe for you in that type of setting. So I do always kind of tell people, always remember that from that perspective is safety plays a big role. Bystander interventions, right? Thinking of those five Bs specifically that you have to do if you see these things happen. If you see something bad happen, we're not just going to sit there and say, okay, let it happen. No, we're going to speak up about it, right? If you see someone fall on the floor, there's universal truths. And I always say we can look at those universal truths, right? So people understand the concept of living life. People understand the concept of death. People understand the concept of love. Those are universal truths, right? So why not use those as starting points and discussions? How do you feel to be loved, affirmed, validated? What does that look like for you? Let me now speak of what that looks like for transgender diverse folks, right? So that way now we have something we can connect on on those universal truths. So lots of ways to engage it. What I don't like seeing is this back and forth fighting basically because it doesn't get anywhere, right? Yeah, we all understand we have freedom of speech, but we also know that we are very diverse as a community. We all have different perspectives. We all have different lived experiences. So it's important to be humble enough to listen to other people's lived experiences. You will be surprised the amount of knowledge you will attain from just talking to someone and hearing their lived experiences. It can go a long way.
1: That's a really important point to make and and something that, you know, future healthcare professionals are definitely going to have to kind of confront these sort of conversations. So it's important for us to know. And, And I also think that it kind of comes back to the core principles of of being a healthcare professional at all is practicing humility, empathy, looking at the data and using that to communicate with patients to do whatever is best for our patients that we look after. That brings us to the end of our podcast. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Christine Rodriguez for joining us on this episode and providing us with so much insight, knowledge and resources regarding trans healthcare and advocacy. I feel like I've learned so much already, and I'm feeling very inspired to continue learning more thanks to you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we encourage you to listen to our whole season, which covers more on the impact of the overturning of Roe v. Wade on different patient populations. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is sponsored by Connecticut AHEC and UConn Help.
0: Let's keep
2: this talk going. Join us on Twitter at Talks Service, Instagram at Urban Service Talks or by email at ust.pod at gmail.com.